Uh, I've named this particular lesson after darkness light. And that's because that was a phrase that was used during the Reformation to talk about the recovery of the gospel. Uh, they, <clears throat> excuse me, they used the Latin phrase, post tenebris lux, after darkness light. And when they used that phrase, what they were referring to was the fact that after centuries of really the obscuring of gospel truth as a result of religious tradition and uh, papal corruption and other problems, after centuries of the obscuring of gospel truth, we once again have a reclaiming of gospel clarity during the time of the Reformation. So after darkness, light. In fact, when we think about the Reformation, oftentimes the, the adjective, well, I guess it's more of a noun, that comes to our mind is the word Protestant. We think of the Protestant Reformation. And it is true that in the late 1540s, you had a group of the followers of Martin Luther from a town in the Holy Roman Empire, modern-day Germany, called Spire, who issued a statement called the Protestation of Spire, which was their way of saying that we're not going to compromise even though Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, was persecuting the Lutheran movement. And that's where the word Protestant comes from. But Luther's not the one who came up with the term Protestant. And for the Reformers themselves, the term that they used to define their movement was a more positive term. Protestant means what you're protesting against. Uh, The term that Luther used was the term evangelical. And that's a term that comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means gospel. If you Germanize it, it becomes evangelical, and he applied it to the evangelical church in Germany. And so when we think of ourselves as evangelicals, what we're saying is we are gospel people. And in the Reformation, it was about the recovery of the gospel. And so when we think about the evangelical movement in the purest sense, not in the sense that so often gets popularized when it's reported in the news as some sort of political movement. Uh, The evangelical movement is a movement about the the purity of the gospel. And that movement stretches, of course, across all 2,000 years of church history, but it was of particular focus at the time of the Reformation. Now, last week we did talk a little bit about the Middle Ages, and I just want to do a brief review because I think this sets up why the light of the Reformation is so important because it's contrasted against the darkness, and we're talking about spiritual darkness, the darkness that had increased during the Middle Ages because, again, of the obscuring of gospel truth. Uh, The doctrinal pillars that we've been tracing in this series, there's three of them, and really we see these as the three fundamental pillars that define biblical and historic orthodoxy. In other words, what does it mean to be a Christian? These three doctrines provide sort of the boundary markers for biblical Christianity. That uh, Christianity, as it's defined in the New Testament, affirms the Word of God as its highest authority— And then it seeks to worship God in purity of doctrine and purity of devotion, spirit and in truth. And then thirdly, 
It celebrates the work of God in salvation as a work which Christ accomplished entirely on the cross, which means that it is by grace, it's a gift, it is through faith, which is also a gift according to Ephesians 2.8, based entirely on the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And we contribute nothing to our salvation. So this slide will look familiar from last week, but if we see these three doctrinal pillars, uh, these pillars began to be eroded during the Middle Ages. And so the reason there's a need for a Reformation is because the doctrinal purity of the church had begun to uh, erode. These pillars had begun to uh, crack, I suppose, under the weight of a growing religious tradition and under the weight of religious corruption, and so the Reformation is about restoring these doctrinal pillars. And uh, again, and I had to use this slide again because it took me a long time in PowerPoint to figure out how to even do something as rudimentary as that, but these pillars began to crack uh, under the weight of, for example, the elevation of Mary and the saints, the dogmatization of the sacramental system, and just a growing authority that was given to tradition and to the office of the papacy. And one more slide that I showed you last week, but again, it illustrates the darkness that was growing in the Middle Ages, and the reason why the light of the gospel was so necessary is because starting with the Christianization of the Roman Empire in the 4th century under Constantine, you have a significant increase in all sorts of extra-biblical and unbiblical traditions. Many of these traditions actually rooted in paganism that just kind of got Christianized, and that growing competition that comes from this religious tradition eventually reaches the point where in the 13th century, the Roman Catholic system extinguishes any remaining light of gospel truth that exists within it. Now, as we talked about last week, uh, this is the period of time when we begin to have the pre-reformers. And so God still has his witness even in the time of growing darkness. And so that witness is seen, go back to this slide, that witness is seen with men like the Waldensians under the leadership of Peter Valdo and then John Wycliffe called the morning star of the Reformation, sort of anticipating that light that is breaking on the horizon. And Jan Hus in Bohemia, or John Hus, as his name is sometimes pronounced, uh, these men were championing, number one, that Christ alone is the head of the church. And if Christ is the head of the church, then his word must be the authority for the church. And so it's a return to biblical authority. And that return to biblical authority then puts an emphasis on we want to get the word of God into the hands of people, which elevates or escalates the desire for Bible translation and the Waldensian movement, Wycliffe and uh, Huss were all involved in getting the word of God into the language of the people so that people had access to truth in a way they could understand. And really that, that explains... Uh, the Reformation in terms of the catalyst that causes the Reformation. We'll talk about that in just a moment. 
Uh, So let's talk about uh, some introductory thoughts to the Reformation. Uh, From a human perspective, the Reformation is made possible by a number of factors. These are just a few of them. Uh, One would be the invention, at least in Europe, of the printing press, a printing press that utilized movable type, which now made it possible for there to be many, many copies of different uh, written works. Uh, Johann Gutenberg uh, developed the printing press in the mid-15th century around the year 1450 or so. So just a few decades prior to the Reformation proper of the 16th century, we now have a major technological advancement so that if you write something down, lots and lots of people can read it. Uh, You also have the decline of the papacy. We talked about that last week. You'll remember that in the 14th century and then into the 15th century, we had a period of time where the papacy was actually in France for about 70 years. And then after that, there were multiple popes. For a long time, there were two popes. Then there were three popes, each claiming to be the true pope, each condemning the other two as false popes. And that finally got resolved in the year 1417 at the Council of Constance, but it demonstrated the fact that the papal system was broken. And so you have, during the ministry of John Wycliffe and then during the ministry of John Huss, you have them saying the papacy is broken, and it was a self-evident truth because it was obvious to everyone in Europe that, yeah, this is a broken system. And uh, it made it easier or uh, made it more of a self-evident observation that uh, Christ alone is the head of the church because the papal system is broken. Uh, If we go back just a couple of centuries, uh, the popes of Europe were extremely powerful. In fact, in the early 1200s, the most powerful of all of the popes, Innocent III, was the one who authorized the Fourth Crusade, and, and really he reigned over even the kings and emperors of Europe. And part of the reason there was no opportunity for a reformation from a human perspective is anyone who resisted that authority was killed. By the time we get to the Reformation, we have kings in Europe who are actually willing to stand up to the Pope. We have princes and other governing bodies that are willing to protect some of these uh, reformers. And so Martin Luther has a political protector Uh, John Calvin has a city council that protects him. We even have an entire nation, the nation of England, under Henry VIII, telling the Pope that they don't want to be Catholic anymore. So that that shift allows for the Reformation to take place. And then thirdly, we have something, the rise of humanism. When we hear the word humanism, we generally think of secular humanism. We think of names like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. That's not the humanism that we're talking about here. Humanism historically refers to a recovery of the humanities, which refers to ancient works or classical works of art and literature. In this case, you had scholars who had rediscovered in the West, which again was traditionally Latin speaking, and then the the European languages developed uh, some of them out of a Latin base known as the Romance languages, but It was largely Latin-based or Germanic-based in terms of the language groups. You have in the late 15th, early 16th century, the recovery of Greek manuscripts, including the New Testament and the Church Fathers. 
and also even the recovery of the Hebrew Old Testament. So the rise of humanism led scholars to say, we want to go back to the original languages of the Old and New Testament. We want to get past the Latin Vulgate. And that became very, very important because it led to a more precise understanding of the Word of God when you study it in its original language rather than being content to study it in a translation. So these are all factors that made the Reformation possible. But if you were to ask the Reformers themselves what was the primary cause behind the Reformation, and certainly from a theological standpoint, we would agree with this, the primary catalyst for the Reformation was nothing less than the power of the Word of God. The Word of God studied in its original language and then proclaimed in the languages of Europe, the common languages of Europe, so that the people of Europe could understand the Word of God in their own language. Instead of going to Mass and hearing a bunch of stuff in a language they didn't understand, Latin, they were going to churches that were preaching in their own language and were preaching from uh, those who were studying the Word of God in the original Greek and for the Old Testament in Hebrew. And that was transformative. And this is true every time we see revival in both biblical and church history. Revival is always the result of the Word of God being faithfully proclaimed with precision and accuracy and in a way that's comprehensible and understandable to the congregation. And as the power of the Word of God goes forth, the Spirit of God takes that truth and He uses it to transform hearts. And really, the Reformation, we we think about the Reformation as this kind of massive movement, but really the Reformation is simply the result of the Holy Spirit enlightening blind eyes and giving life to dead hearts on an individual basis as the gospel advances through the Spirit's power. And if we want to see Reformation and revival in our own day, it will come through that same means. It is always the Word of God through the power of the Spirit of God that produces revival, and the Reformation was no exception. So you can see, here's Martin Luther. I have a couple quotes from Luther. Luther, near the end of his life, he says, speaking about what God had done through his ministry, Luther acknowledges, all that I have done is to put forth, preach, and write the word of God. And apart from that, I have done nothing. It is the word that has done great things. I have done nothing. The word has achieved everything. And that was... I believe, a proper assessment of what God had been doing in the Reformation. Luther, in another place, says, By the word, the earth has been uh, subdued. By the word, the church has been saved. And by the word, it shall be reestablished. So Luther understands that the catalyst for Reformation is the word of God, again, empowered by the Holy Spirit. One Final quote on this point, again from Luther. He says, The Pope, Luther, Augustine, or even an angel from heaven. So he's kind of including everybody there. (laughs) He says, These should not be masters, judges, or arbiters, but only witnesses, disciples, and confessors of Scripture. Nor should any doctrine be taught or heard in the church except the pure word of God. Otherwise, 
let the teachers and the hearers be accursed along with their doctrine. And I love the fact that Luther includes himself in this. He's saying, look, my only job is to preach and teach the word of God. And insofar as I veer from that, no one should pay any attention to me. And that's exactly the same principle that we would want to hold ourselves to today. It's the Acts 17.11 principle of always searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. Uh, The Reformers, much like the pre-Reformers, they insisted that Christ alone is the head of the church. And if Christ alone is the head of the church, then his word is the final authority for faith and practice. So the idea of his word as the authority flows from the commitment that he is alone the head of the church. And so you can see that Geneva Confession, 1536, 1536 is the year that John Calvin arrived in Geneva, and he, along with another reformer there, William Farrell, helped produce this confession. And in this confession, they affirm that we desire to follow Scripture alone as the rule for faith and religion. And again, for us, this seems so obvious, but in the 16th century, this was revolutionary, which is what made the Reformation so radical. All right, I want to talk a little bit about, and today we'll talk about two of the leading reformers. These are both names that you're very familiar with, Martin Luther and John Calvin, Uh, It's always important to remind ourselves that when we talk about some of the heroes in church history, that the goal here is not to put them on a pedestal. That's not the goal. Uh, Luther and Calvin are both sinners, sinners saved by grace. And in fact, we don't have time to talk about it today, but we could talk about areas of weakness and failure in their lives. But that's not the point. The point is that they're trophies of God's grace, just as you and I are trophies of God's grace. And when we talk about them, even when we celebrate the the powerful ways in which God used them, the point of this is not to elevate them. In the same way that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 goes through all of those heroes of the faith from the Old Testament, the whole goal of that exercise is not to put the spotlight on any of them, but rather, as the author of Hebrews continues to do in chapter 12, It is to encourage us to run the race with endurance, and it is to help us fix our eyes on Christ, who is the one to which those heroes anticipated. And as we look in church history, Christ is the one to whom Luther and Calvin and all the other reformers also looked. And so in looking at how God used them, the point of this is for us to look past them to the one to whom they also looked, the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of the faith. It's just important for me to say that because sometimes in Reformed evangelical circles, we can fall prey to this idea of putting the Reformers on a pedestal. They would never want us to do that, nor is it right for us to do that. Rather, we put Christ on the pedestal and worship him just as they also sought to worship him. All right, a little bit about Martin Luther and... Martin Luther's testimony is well known. I am going to rehearse it here today. And if it's something that you're already familiar with, just rejoice in the fact that his testimony in its 
integral, integral parts is no different than any other Christian's testimony. It is a recognition of his own unworthiness that leads him to the cross of Christ to embrace the all-sufficient work of Christ in faith and to, be, to find both forgiveness and justification through the work of the Lord Jesus. Uh, but it was in 1505. He was born in 1483, November of 1483. Uh, he grew up in uh, the, the home of a father who was part of sort of a growing middle class in the 16th century, uh, enough uh, financial wealth for his son Martin to uh, enjoy a medieval education. His dad really wanted him to become a lawyer. And it was in 1505, July of 1505, he was walking home through the German countryside uh, on his way back from law school, if I remember the details correctly. He was walking through the German countryside. There was a thunderstorm that had arisen, and he found himself outside, caught in a thunderstorm. It was a very scary kind of moment, and a bolt of lightning struck the ground not far from where he was walking, which uh, admittedly would be a a terrifying uh, circumstance. And uh, Luther was terrified. And in his uh, panic, he cried out, as a typical medieval Roman Catholic would have done, to his patron saint, Saint Anne, spare me and I will become a monk. Now, we know from other literature from the medieval period that oftentimes uh, medieval Roman Catholics would make those kinds of promises in a moment of panic. You know, help me out of this situation and I'll do this. Uh, But they tended not to keep those promises as soon as the panic subsided. Uh, In Luther's case, he actually kept that promise. And 15 days later, much to his father's chagrin, Luther left the pursuit of law and joined a monastery there in Erfurt in the Holy Roman Empire, modern-day Germany, and it was an Augustinian monastery, uh, which will become significant because it's, if you remember from when we talked about Augustine, Augustine is the doctor of grace, and it really was Augustinian soteriology, Augustine's understanding of salvation, that uh, influenced Luther, even though we're more than a millennium after Augustine's life. It was the fear of God's wrath, well, really the fear of death, that motivated Luther to become a monk. And it was the fear of God's wrath that obsessed him, that occupied his attention, preoccupied him for the next decade of his life. He was always afraid that he was going to die, and when he would stand before God, that his self righteous works that he was working so hard to try and accumulate that those things would not be enough to get him into heaven. Uh, In fact, as he's read in the book of Romans, Romans 1, 16 and 17 about the gospel that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As Luther saw that phrase, the righteousness of God, he actually says that he came to hate that phrase. Because in that phrase, as an unsaved medieval Roman Catholic, all he could see was his own condemnation, right? The righteousness of God is perfection. And Luther knew he was not perfect. 
He knew that he fell short of the righteousness of God. And uh, no matter how hard he tried, and he tried really, really hard for the first decade of his time in the monastery, uh, he actually permanently damaged his health for the rest of his life because he was working so hard to try and atone for his own sins. So he'd go for long periods without eating. He would sleep on the cold stone floors of the, of the monastery in the German winter without blankets, freezing cold, just because he thought it was helping to atone for his sins. He would go and visit the confessor there in the monastery very, very frequently to confess. So often, in fact, that the confessor told him to stop coming back until you actually commit a big sin because it was getting annoying. So this is Luther in his efforts to try and earn God's favor. And yet the harder he tried, the more he realized that his self-righteous efforts were all in vain. And so it really was desperation uh, that was motivating him to such extreme measures. And yet in that desperation... Uh, he was only growing more and more discouraged. So, as we say there, he spent the next decade trying to appease God's wrath through his own self-righteous efforts. And then it was through his study of the Psalms, and then the book of Romans, and then the book of Galatians. It was really those three sections of Scripture that the Holy Spirit began to work on Luther's heart and to illumine the truth of the, of, the, of the gospel to Luther so that Luther began to understand that the righteousness of God that's talked about in Romans, the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel is not simply the righteous standard of God before which all men fall short, but it is the righteous provision of God through the work of Christ, such that being clothed in Christ's righteousness, we who are sinners can be declared righteous before a holy God. And when Luther discovered that truth, he discovered the gospel, and he discovered grace, and God transformed him. I love the fact that in the Reformation, the Reformation, again, is not just a movement. The Reformation is a revival, and it's not just a massive revival. It is a revival of individuals, and it starts with the Reformers themselves. For Luther, he experienced a personal Reformation before he was ever involved in a wider movement. And you can see as he expresses his own testimony, and again, this is after a decade of struggle, he says, at last, at last. Meditating day and night on the scriptures, by the mercy of God, I gave heed to the context of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. That through faith we are justified. He goes, then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. And when he discovered that, the truth of the gospel of grace, he says, here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. An entirely new side of the scripture opened itself to me and I extolled 
my sweetest word with a love as great as the loathing with which before I had hated the term, the righteousness of God. Uh, So I just love that, that Luther previously had only seen in that phrase his condemnation. And when he When the Spirit of God revealed to him the truth of the gospel, he came to understand that that which he had previously hated is actually the sweetest concept in Scripture, that you who are unrighteous can be declared righteous through faith based entirely on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Well, Luther's conversion, there's a little bit of discussion among scholars about when that took place, but probably around 1515, uh, may have been a little bit after that, his understanding of the gospel developed over the course of his life. It was in 1517 that we have the most famous event of the Reformation. And sometimes when people think about the Reformation, they think it uh, is, you know, this one year in the 16th century, 1517. In fact, uh, back in 2017, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It was a celebration of this event. Uh, Going back to last week, we were talking about the sale of indulgences, which was the idea that for a suggested donation to the Catholic Church, you can receive a certificate of forgiveness, a pardon from the Pope that's called an indulgence. And there were monks who would go around and set up shop in... uh, places throughout medieval Europe, and they would actually sell indulgences. And the particular guy in Saxony, which was the area around Wittenberg where uh, Luther was, was a guy named Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel had been commissioned to sell indulgences and even had a fancy slogan, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And and I've actually looked it up in German. It's clinked and springt, so it, it rhymed in the original. And uh, almost like the modern faith healers who, you know, sell their trinkets for money, here you have in the medieval system the sale of forgiveness in exchange for money. And this money was sent back to Rome, and it was used to build things like St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. Well, Luther, when he heard about this, was incensed because he just could not believe that forgiveness would be sold for money. That's just a completely unbiblical concept. And so he wrote out 95 reasons why the sale of indulgences was wrong. And that 95, that list of 95 reasons is called the 95 Theses. Uh, we don't know for sure if Luther nailed it to the door. That's the, that's the traditional story. That's what I like to, to think happened. Um, I love the hashtag nailed it that's always popular in October around Reformation Day, showing Luther there ready to nail in his 95 theses. Um, That may have been how it happened. Uh, We don't know for sure. But whether or not it was a dramatic posting of these 95 theses, what we do know is that it did have a dramatic effect. It was written in Latin originally, but then that document was translated into German. We don't know exactly how that happened. Somehow it got to a printer who ran it through the printing press, and suddenly there were thousands of people throughout Saxony who were all like, hey, wait a second, this is wrong. The sale of indulgences is wrong. Luther gave voice to what was an obvious corruption within the papal system. 
Uh, This led to Luther being excommunicated. He was actually excommunicated in January of 1521, but it was a process that started in 1520. He was sent by Pope Leo X a bull of excommunication. A papal bull is just a papal decree, and he was actually given 60 days to recant or he would be excommunicated. And in typical Martin Luther style, he waited till the last of the 60 days and then marched out into Wittenberg and burned the bull of excommunication in front of the entire gathered town, uh, which was his way of saying, I'm not going to recant. So he was excommunicated, and then he was summoned to appear before Charles V, who was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire at the time, at a... Imperial councils are called diets, and it was in a city called Worms, so Diet of Worms. Yes, it looks like the, you know, the lunch of uh, fish bait, the Diet of Worms, but uh, it was an imperial council held in the city of Worms. This is in April of 1521. You remember John Huss had been summoned to a council, and John Huss had been promised safe passage, and then he had been burned at the stake. Martin Luther is summoned to a council a hundred years later. He's promised safe passage, but Luther assumes that he also will be executed. And um, he arrives in April of 1521. He's presented with a stack of his books and read a list of the things that he's um, heretical on uh, from the perspective of the Roman Catholic Church. And he's uh, asked to recant uh, he, Luther responds, I think recognizing the sort of the seriousness of the moment, he asked for a little bit of time in order to uh, articulate his response clearly. He's given 24 hours. He comes back the next day, and here is what he says. Famously, since your majesty and your worships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. There's that principle of the authority of scripture. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And then, uh, according to tradition, People think that Luther may have also said, here I stand, I can do no other. In fact, if you go visit the spot where this took place today, there's a plaque in the ground that says, here I stand, Martin Luther. But historians aren't sure if Luther ever really said that. So just a little historical footnote for you. I'm sure there was at least some point in Luther's life when he was in line, he's like, hey, I'm standing here. So he probably said, here I stand, at least some point in his life. But he did take a stand. That's the more important thing. And he took a stand based on the foundation of the truth of God's word. Uh, After that, he had to go into hiding. Um, He was allowed to, the promise of safe passage was actually honored. He was allowed to leave, but he had to go into hiding. He went into hiding in the Vortberg Castle. And what did he do while he was in hiding? He worked on translating the New Testament from Latin, excuse me, not from Latin, from Greek into German. And so in 1522, he completed the German New Testament and uh, then eventually went back to Wittenberg. In 1527, we think, is when he wrote his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which in many ways serves 
not only as a reflection of his study of the Psalms, because it came out of Psalm 46, but also as really the basis of his confidence throughout all of his life that he was trusting in God as his mighty fortress in spite of the fact that his life was often in danger. So I include some of these events because I want you to see the courage of Martin Luther, but it's not a courage that he was trying to muster up by just trying to be brave. It was a courage that was based in a conviction, and that conviction came from his study of the Word of God and his desire to get the Word of God into the hands of the people whom he served. I want to talk just briefly about the heart of the gospel because this really is the heart of the Reformation, that Luther and his fellow Protestants were convinced that the doctrine of justification had been lost and obscured in the high and late Middle Ages, and they were seeking to recover that doctrine. Uh, Justification refers to the fact that we are positionally declared to be righteous at the moment of conversion in the eyes of God, not on the basis of our own merit, but entirely on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. And we are clothed in his righteousness through union with him, and therefore we are considered righteous because he is righteous. That's justification. And it was that doctrine that was really at the heart of the Reformers' insistence on the fact that we are saved by grace through faith alone. And so Martin Luther, I won't read this quote, but he talks about the exchange that takes place at the moment of conversion. My sin is imputed to Christ who pays the penalty for it at the cross, and his righteousness is accounted to me so that God views me as being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the happy exchange that Luther talks about. John Calvin similarly talks about the fact that we are justified by faith, or justified by faith is he who, excluded from the righteousness of works, grasps the righteousness of Christ through faith, and clothed in it appears in God's sight not as a sinner, but as a righteous man. So that's, that's what the Reformers are really focusing on when they talk about sola fide. So the fact that sinners are justified and we are justified by grace, which means it's not on the basis of our works, through faith, which itself is a gift according to Ephesians 2.8, based on the work of Christ. It's everything that he did and God applies his righteousness to us. Um, the Reformers looked to the Word of God to uh, defend this view, and we don't have time to do a full defense of the doctrine of justification by faith from the Scriptures, but here's just a sampling of some of the Scriptures that the Reformers looked to and that the Reformers used. And of course, these are the same Scriptures that you and I would look to in defining the gospel and in defending the gospel. And... Certainly, if we had more time today, we would spend time looking through those texts. Um, One thing that you probably have heard of is the five solas of the Reformation. And I just want to show you how the five solas uh, relate to one another. Sola Scriptura is that idea that Scripture alone is our final authority. And we've talked about how that flows out of a commitment to Christ as the head of the church. 
So if Scripture teaches, so whatever Scripture teaches is true and authoritative. And Scripture teaches that we are saved, not on the basis of works, but as a gift of God's grace. That's sola gratia. And that grace is received through the gift of faith. So it's through faith, which is something that we don't do. It's, again, a gift of God. And uh, that faith is focused on the work of Christ. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, based on the finished work of Christ alone. And if Christ did everything, then that means that I contribute nothing. Then who gets all the credit for that? Well, I don't get any of the credit for that. God alone gets the credit for that, and that's soli deo gloria. So these are how the five solos of the Reformation relate to one another. Scripture alone is our authority, and the biblical gospel is a gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And this ran directly contrary to the medieval Roman Catholic view, which said, well, God does some of it, but you do some of it. Your justification is based in part on your good works, and so you do get some of the credit because you do, you, you've contributed something. And Luther was like, that's not at all what the biblical gospel is. If salvation is based on you, it's a wage, but the wages of sin is death. The only way that you get the free gift of salvation, Romans 6.23, is if it is a free gift, a gift of God's grace, and uh, even as Paul says in Romans eleven six, <clears throat> speaking of the gospel, he says, if or salvation, if it is on the basis of works, then grace is no longer grace. Um, because once you introduce works as a component that's required for justification, <clears throat> excuse me, then it becomes a reward and no longer a gift of God's grace. I just wanted to show you this because I think it's really cool. Um, When we think about reformers and flowers, which I know you've probably never thought about before, um, most people think of John Calvin and the tulip, and that's because the five points of Calvinism are sometimes abbreviated using the acronym TULIP. The reality is John Calvin didn't come up with that acronym. We don't even know if he liked tulips. I'm sure he did. Tulips are nice. But when we... When we actually look at the Reformation, there is one of the major reformers who did select a flower as a representation of his theology, and it was Martin Luther, and the flower that he selected was the rose, in particular a white rose because he saw that as being different than the red rose, which he said the red rose is a sign of worldly love, the white rose is a sign of holy purity was the idea behind that. And he almost created something similar to the wordless book. The wordless book wasn't uh, developed until the 19th century by Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody. It was used for cross-cultural evangelism. But Luther, all the way back in the 16th century, uses this, and it's the cross that changes the heart, that results in a life of purity, and then the daylight, the blue ring there is the daylight of salvation, and then the golden ring of looking forward to heaven in eternity. So I just, I think that's kind of cool. Okay. John Calvin. Um, Unlike Martin Luther, who was very dramatic and colorful and 
uh, when you read about Luther's life, he just does extreme things. And some of those things are extremely good. And then there's other moments where you're like, I wish, I wish you hadn't done that. So uh, Luther's just a very colorful figure in church history. John Calvin's much more subdued. John Calvin didn't prefer the spotlight. He didn't prefer the stage. In fact, he was seeking for his whole life a life of quiet scholarship. So if he had been a seminary student here, he would be the guy in the library all the time. That was John Calvin. And the reason I emphasize that is because I think it's significant to see in the Reformation that God uses different personalities to accomplish his work. It's not about your personality. It's about your willingness to be faithful to what God has called you to do. And the contrast in personalities just demonstrates the amazing wisdom and kindness of God that he would use clay pots like us to accomplish his kingdom purposes. So John Calvin actually represents the second generation of the Reformation, and that's something that we don't always think about. He was quite a bit younger, about 25 years younger than Luther and some of the other first-generation reformers. Uh, His conversion testimony, again, not as dramatic as Luther's, but one interesting parallel is that Calvin's father also wanted him to be a lawyer. And in both cases, it was the same. For Luther's dad and for Calvin's dad, they wanted their sons to be lawyers because lawyers made more money than pastors, which I believe is still true. So, But that's not why you choose to become a minister. Uh, a minister is of the gospel is about a lifelong calling. And uh, one of the cool things about the Reformation is that they really elevated the idea that your vocation, no matter what your field is, including law, that your vocation is an act of worship to God as a response to his calling on your life. So it's not about being a pastor or being a lawyer or being whatever it is that God's called you to be. It's about pursuing whatever that calling is as an act of worship to him, which is one of the beautiful teachings that comes out of, again, a biblical understanding of work and vocation. Uh, Calvin famously wrote a work in 1536 is when it was first published called his Institutes. You've probably heard of Calvin's Institutes. He actually wrote that in Switzerland because he had to flee from France is where he was from because of religious persecution. And he wrote it as an apologetic for the Protestant faith. Again, if you think all the way back in the second and third century, we had the apologists who were being attacked and persecuted by the Roman Empire, and they were being persecuted for being Christians, and so they're writing a defense of the Christian faith in the face of persecution. Now, in the 16th century, John Calvin's doing the same thing, and he's saying, you should stop persecuting us because what we believe, as articulated in the Institutes, is something that... is not, you're persecuting us under a false pretense. Let me tell you what we really believe. And that's how the Institutes get written. The first edition of the Institutes is only six chapters long. By the time we get to the final edition of the Institutes toward the end of Calvin's life, he's expanded that to a work that is 80 chapters in length. And of course, is this great, really, systemization of Calvin's theology. Uh, Calvin began his ministry in Geneva in 1536. Uh, Actually, a fascinating story about that, but we're 
We're running short on time. Um, he, he was traveling through Geneva, actually planning to go to Strasbourg because that's where he wanted to pursue the life of quiet scholarship. And the other reformer who was in Geneva, a guy named William Farrell, uh, needed help. And he was so desperate to have somebody help him that when Calvin met with him, again, what was intended to be just a one-night stay in Geneva, Farrell actually got to the point where he told Calvin, if you don't stay here and help me, may God curse all your future studies. Um, Which is not how you should try and find an associate pastor. But Calvin was so... He was so impressed uh, by the weightiness of what Pharrell had just said that he felt as if God himself was saying, you need to stay. And so Calvin ended up staying, and he stayed for a number of years, and then uh, he did eventually make it to Strasbourg for a short time. He got married there and then returned to Geneva in 1541 and spent the rest of his life until 1564 faithfully preaching the Word of God in St. Peter's Church there in uh, the city of Geneva. Uh, 1555, uh, we had major persecution in England under a queen known as Bloody Mary, Mary I, Mary Tudor, who was the daughter of Henry VIII. She was trying to kill all of the Protestants in England, so many of them fled to the mainland, and a number of them showed up in Geneva, including John Knox, the famous preacher in Scotland. And actually, some of those English scholars in Geneva worked on a translation of the Bible into English that becomes known as the Geneva Bible, which was one of the most popular translations of the Scripture prior to the King James Version. In fact, it was the Geneva Bible that the pilgrims brought with them across on the Mayflower uh, to Plymouth in 1620. And his final edition of the Institutes there in 1559, uh, actually, it's kind of funny. He got sick in 1559 and thought he was going to die. What do you do if you're a reformer and you think you're going to die? You quickly write a book, right? So that's exactly what he did. He uh, expanded his final edition of the Institutes. He actually lived for another few years until 1564. Uh, When we think of John Calvin and Calvinism, I think this is important to say the, the word Calvinism is a very, uh, it's a very explosive term in some circles. It's a very controversial term in some circles. And that's uh, because there's been a debate through the centuries between something called Calvinism and something called Arminianism. And we don't have time this morning to get into all the details of that. But in some churches, even using the word Calvin or Calvinism causes people to kind of react negatively And I would suggest that that's because they don't really understand Calvinism uh, as a term related to salvation, nor do they understand John Calvin in terms of his theological approach to life. For John Calvin, it wasn't just about God's sovereignty in salvation, though that was definitely part of it, and that's what he's most remembered for. It was about God's sovereignty in every aspect of life. And the reality that we are living in a world where our God is on his throne, and so everything that we do must be an act of worship and homage to him, and any obstacle we encounter or any suffering we endure 
It's all as a result of his hand of providence. And so we can rejoice in it because we know that he's got us, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. All of those promises in Romans 8 and throughout all of Scripture are true because God is sovereign. And so all of life is about bringing glory and honor to our sovereign king. And so when you think of John Calvin, I would encourage you to think about more than just God's sovereignty and salvation, the doctrine of election, but rather think about a more holistic approach to life that recognizes the hand of God's sovereignty in everything and seeks to operate as a worshiper, seeing that hand of providence in all of life. So here's just a a quote from John Calvin. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his heavenly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. No, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. We even see in that a little bit of an anticipation of Jonathan Edwards and the idea that our happiness comes, our satisfaction is found only in service to Christ. Well, that brings us to the end of our lesson today, remembering the reformers. I do have on the next slide a couple of additional names that are helpful for you to know. We don't have time to go into detail on these except to say Philip Melanchthon was Luther's sidekick in Wittenberg. Ulrich Zwingli was another first-generation reformer in Switzerland in the city of Zurich. And really out of his ministry comes the reformed branch of the Reformation that then in the second generation includes Calvin. William Tyndale is the man who translated the New Testament and the Pentateuch into English from the original Greek and Hebrew. He was uh, burned at the stake for his faithfulness. Thomas Cranmer was the first archbishop of the Church of England, which represents the break between England and the Roman Catholic system, so Anglicanism. And then John Knox was the fiery preacher of Scotland who courageously said, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. And um, when we think about the courage that these men exhibited, it again motivates us. Which brings me to our final slide, and that's this. Just three things that I hope will encourage you, because we are living in a time where we also need courage. And studying the lives of faithful men and women throughout church history, whether it's Hebrews 11 or church history, it motivates us to run the race with endurance and to fix our eyes on Christ. Where does that courage come from? And we touched on this last week, but I think it's helpful to remember that for the reformers, their convictions were grounded in a careful study of the word of God. And then their calling was to preach and teach that truth and the courage that they exhibited, that courage, it really flows or came from a heart that was grounded in conviction and committed to a God-given calling. And so we don't have to try and muster up courage. All we have to do is be faithful to what we know to be true and be faithful to what God's called us to do. And if we're faithful, we will be found to be courageous. And of course, that faithfulness is a gift of God's grace, and we pray that by His grace and for His glory, we might be found faithful until He comes.
All right, that brings us to the end for today. So let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for a reminder from the 16th century, 500 years ago, of these men who are so committed to the precision of your truth as revealed in your word, to the purity of your gospel, to the power of the word preached, and to uh, the faithfulness that stemmed from that, the willingness to endure persecution and suffering as long as they could be found faithful to get the truth of your word into the hands and hearts of your people. Father, we, uh, we celebrate that legacy, not to exalt these men, but rather to celebrate what you did through these men as your spirit used your word to transform lives. We know that you do that even today. And so we ask that you would continue to transform our world through the preaching of your word. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.